screaming at the top of the, their lungs, he arose, right? I mean, who, who can't help but smile at that? And yet, as I think about it, I really don't think that that first Easter was anything like this. There probably wasn't a whole lot of joy and excitement when the disciples woke up that first Easter morning. Instead, I think that they probably woke up with a lot of dread. One more morning where they were reminded that their rabbi was no longer alive. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to take you guys on a little bit of a journey. I want you to experience what it would have probably felt like for at least a couple of Jesus' disciples as they went through this emotional roller coaster of waking up with despair and yet throughout the course of the day having their hope resurrected alongside Jesus. Got a little bit of a buzz if we can... I'm not sure if we've got this thing turned on. But anyway, um, so... so Stick with me here, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share a story with you, but rather than just simply reading it out of Scripture, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you this story, and I might get a little bit dramatic, okay? Just going to warn you up front, but here's the reason why. I don't want you to just know this story. I want you to feel it. I want you to feel what it would have been like to be a disciple who wakes up trying to come to terms with the fact that their rabbi is dead, and along with him, so is their hope. So picture this. It's Sunday. Mid-afternoon, thank you. Sunday, mid-afternoon, and there are, there are two men who are making the seven-mile journey from Jerusalem down to the little village of Emmaus. Now, this in and of itself is nothing extraordinary. I mean, there's lots of people, since it's the day after the Passover feast, there's a lot of people who are journeying home. But there's something different, a little bit off about these two. I mean, for one, they look like they're carrying the weight of the world on their backs. Their shoulders sag, and their feet drag in the dust as if they've been walking for days on end. And at times they'll lean in and they'll, they'll talk to one another in hushed, anxious voices. And at other times they'll lapse into silence as they chew on the thoughts that are spinning out of control in their heads. Well, as these two are walking along, having a conversation, they hear footsteps of somebody coming up behind. And so, of course, they they grow quiet. They grow silent, waiting for this person to pass by before they continue their conversation. But this stranger doesn't pass by. Instead, he he addresses them directly with a question. What are you guys talking about? (laughs) The disciples are a little bit surprised that he talks to them. And they they look at one another with eyes that are full of pain and more than a little bit of anxiety. And in a a glance, they share an entire conversation. Thoughts are going through their minds like, what do we say? I mean, how could we even begin to put into words this sea of emotion that churns within our hearts? And if we could, would it be safe? Because the Sanhedrin, our religious leaders have ears everywhere. And the rest of the disciples have gone into hiding, terrified that the same thing that happened to Jesus, our rabbi, would happen to them. So is it safe to say anything at all? There's a couple of awkward moments until one of the men, a man named Cleopas, finally breaks the silence with a question. Are you new to Jerusalem? Were you just visiting? I mean, haven't you heard the things that have happened in the last few days? What things, the stranger asks. About Jesus of Nazareth, Cleopas responds, somewhat surprised at this man's apparent ignorance. How could he not have heard about this? So he gives a little more information. He says, Cleopas says, 
you know, he was a man, a prophet, powerful. In the words that he spoke, he spoke the words of God with authority. But he didn't just speak. He also backed his words up with powerful miracles. And there were many of us that had hoped that he was the long-awaited Messiah, the one that would redeem Israel from the hand of our Roman occupiers. But that hope, it died three days ago on a Roman cross with Jesus. Cleopas grows silent as he's overcome with his emotions. And as he tries to process, how do I continue? What more do I say? Is it safe? And finally, he just throws caution to the wind and dives in. And so he continues. You know, the Roman, or the, the, our Jewish leaders and the Sanhedrin apparently felt that Jesus was more of a danger to our people than he was to Roman rule. And so they branded him a traitor and they handed him over to Romans to kill him. And that happened three days ago on Friday. But then this morning we wake up and some of the women in our group went to the tomb to say their last goodbyes. And when they got there, the tomb was empty. Jesus' body was nowhere to be found. And they came back to us with wild tales that they had seen a vision of angels and the angels said that Jesus was alive. But how could that possibly be? We know that the ones that Rome kills stay dead. Some of our, our men also went to check it out for themselves, and they found it exactly as the women had said. The tomb was empty. Jesus' body is gone. And quite honestly, we don't know what to make of it. As they continue to walk, the stranger begins to look at these two men, kind of with that look that a father gets for a particularly dense child, right? He starts shaking his head and he goes, guys, are you really that foolish that you don't realize that this is exactly what the prophets foretold must happen to the Messiah? The disciples are a little taken back by his response, in part because of his sudden change in tone, but mostly because of the words he's just said. What on earth does he mean that this is what the prophets foretold? The prophet spoke of a conquering king who would overcome God's enemies. Not some crucified rabbi crushed under the heel of the Roman machine, right? Well, their confusion is written all over their faces. And so as they continue their journey to Emmaus, this stranger begins to point to passage after passage from the scriptures that they had learned as they grew up, scriptures that they had memorized but never fully understand, understood. And he begins to show them that this is exactly what the prophets had foretold. He begins by, since it was the Passover that they had just been celebrating, he begins by pointing to that first Passover in Egypt. When God had commanded the Israelites to take a pure, spotless lamb, to sacrifice it, to gather the blood and to use it to mark the door frames of their home, so that when the angel of the Lord passed through Egypt, metting out justice upon the country that had held his people enslaved for 400 years, when the angel saw that blood, he would pass over that home and nobody would be affected by the wrath of God. And the stranger says, do you remember that? Well, Jesus, this week, became the final Passover lamb. He was crucified on a cross, and his blood now covers God's people so that they will not 
suffer the wrath of their sins. He then points to the prophet Isaiah. He says, remember what Isaiah said, that the Messiah would be led like a lamb to the slaughter, that he would be pierced for our transgressions, he would be crushed for our sins. That the penalty that, bring, or the, the penalty that brings us freedom would be placed upon him and that by his wounds we would be healed. And so don't you realize, guys, that this is exactly what needed to happen. In dying, Jesus allows us to live. But the psalmist also said that God would not simply abandon him to the grave. He would not allow his Holy One to see decay. So though, although the Messiah, Jesus, had to die, he in no way was going to stay dead. As he's saying these things to the disciples, as they walk along, their hearts begin to beat faster and faster and faster as their despair is slowly but surely transformed into hope. Could what this man says be true? Could this have all been part of God's plan from the very beginning? And as they ponder these impossible thoughts, the village of Emmaus begins to rise up over the horizon. And the two disciples begin to angle themselves towards the city gates. And they look over and they realize that the man isn't following them. That it looks like he's going to continue on his journey to the next village. But he can't do that. I mean, he's become a ray of hope in a world full of despair, and they're not ready to be done with him yet. They need him. And so they beg him, please, hey, listen, it's, it's late. I mean, the sun's going to be setting in a couple hours. Please come home with us. Let us feed you dinner. You can stay the night. Then you can go to the next village. Thankfully, the stranger acquiesces, and he comes to them to stay the evening. That night, as they sit around the table, this stranger takes a piece of bread from the table and he blesses it. And he begins to hand it out in a way that is hauntingly reminiscent of the last meal that they had shared with Jesus. And suddenly they look at this stranger with new eyes and realize he's no stranger at all. He's Jesus, <clears throat> their rabbi. No, their Messiah and Lord, risen from the dead and in better health than they have ever seen him doesn't look like a man who's just been crucified on a Roman cross. And they sit there, stunned, with mouths hanging open, afraid even to breathe. And Jesus looks at them, seeing the recognition dawning in their faces. And he begins to smile with a look that says, Finally, you see. And then, in a blink of an eye, he's gone. And for a moment, the, the disciples just stare at the seat that Jesus has just vacated. And these thoughts are running through their minds, coursing through their hearts. How could this be? How is he alive? And how didn't we recognize him? He was, he was standing right beside us. Weren't our hearts beating out of our chest as we made this trek here? And as he began to open the scriptures and show that this is exactly what the prophets had foretold. Wait till the disciples hear the good news. Jesus is alive. He's, he's alive. And a grin begins to spread across their faces. And they look at one another. And in their minds they're thinking, wait till the disciples hear 
And in a moment, they realize what they've got to do. So they jump up and they run for the door and they run out into the evening because it doesn't matter that the sun is setting. This good news can't wait till morning. They've got to get back to, or back to Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if that's exactly how it went down. I'm not sure if that's how these disciples felt. But I can tell you this. Pretty confidently say that in the week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, from what the day we call Palm Sunday to that first Easter Sunday, those poor disciples were on an emotional roller coaster. I mean, think about this for a moment. Palm Sunday. They come walking into Jerusalem. Jesus is thronged with crowds of people screaming, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord! People are tearing palm branches off and laying them down on the ground. People are taking their coats off and laying them on the ground so they can walk over them. And the disciples are going... Oh, baby, we, we bet on the right horse here. He is who we thought he was. He's going to do what he said he was going to do. He's going to overthrow Rome. And then Sunday became Monday. Monday became Tuesday, and the public sentiment in Jerusalem begins to sour. And the disciples are thinking to themselves, what's he waiting for? When is he going to rise up and ride this groundswell of public sentiment into a tidal wave that will sweep Rome out of their position of power? Then Wednesday comes, and Thursday. And on Thursday night, they have a meal in an upper room. And Jesus looks at them and says, Guys, this is not going to play out the way you think it is. And then he does something completely unexpected. He gets down on his knees and begins to wash their feet in a posture that is so completely contrary to the posture of a conquering king. And they're more than a little bit confused. And then Jesus is arrested. He's put on trial. He's convicted. He's beaten, mocked, crucified on a cross, and ultimately died and buried in a cave. And in that moment, a spear was thrust through the heart of their hope. We were wrong. He's not who he said he was. He, he obviously didn't do what he said he was going to do. We're lost. Where does this leave us? I mean, we backed him. That means we're in just as much danger of the same thing happening as he was. What are we going to do? And then comes Sunday. And on Sunday, these disciples didn't wake up with hearts full of joy, ready to scream, He arose! No! They woke up with hearts that were heavy with sorrow and disappointment and discouragement and despair. Those women that went to the tomb, they weren't going there expecting to see it empty. They were going there to say goodbye and to anoint His body for burial. When they came and they shared that they had seen angels and that Jesus was alive, the disciples didn't believe them because their hope was dead. This couldn't possibly be true, despite what the women are saying. And then, then they saw Jesus with their own eyes. They heard his voice as he spoke to them. They had a meal with him. They were able to touch the wounds, the scars, and when they finally saw him, their hope was resurrected within them. But I've got to say something about this hope. 
it was totally a different hope that rose in their hearts than what they had had before the cross. It was as different from that hope as Jesus' resurrected body was different from the body he'd had before. And remember, his disciples didn't recognize him at first. The hope that they had had before the cross was a hope that was built and founded upon a, a desire, a possibility. It's the same kind of hope that Robin has for her angels. I really hope they do well this year. They might not, but I hope they will. And in the same way the disciples were saying, I really hope that he's the one. He might not be. I mean, there's been lots of other false messiahs that have come and gone, but I hope he is. And that hope died with Jesus. That hope was buried in a tomb. But the hope that rose in their hearts when they saw Jesus risen from the dead was a hope that wasn't built on a desire or a possibility, but but upon the assurance of what they had seen with their own eyes. And because they could see Jesus with their own eyes, it's what Peter calls a living hope. Because their Messiah was alive, their hope was alive. Let's throw 1 Peter 3, or 1, 3 up there. I'm just going to read this one verse. This is a verse that is written in the opening verses of Peter's letter to his, his, the other believers. And he says this about the hope that we have because of the resurrection. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because in his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope's not dead because our Lord and our Savior is not dead. It's alive because he's alive, period. Thank you, Darlene. But it's not just living. It's also an active hope. Because before that hope had risen in their hearts, these men and women were terrified. They were hiding. They were sure that the the Jewish leaders were going to find them and put them on a cross as well. So they went into hiding. And yet when that hope began to be rebirthed in their hearts, it radically transformed the way they lived. And it transformed the ways that they chose to, to do things. Because these same people who had been cowering in a room, afraid that they might be caught start running out into the streets in the same city that just weeks before had killed their rabbi, and they begin to declare that Jesus is the Savior, He's the Lord, He's the Messiah, and He is alive. And even when they experienced pushback, even when they tasted persecution for what they were saying, They kept pushing. They kept sharing the gospel, even to the point that they lost their lives. And i got to tell you, as somebody who reads this, and, and, and there are times, even as a pastor, I go, is this true? Did this really happen the way this is written? Can I trust this? Let me tell you that the single greatest piece of evidence that this is true, and that the tomb was empty, and that the cross did not win is the radically transformed lives of his disciples who claimed to see him with their own eyes because I don't know anybody who would be willing to die for something that they knew was a lie. And yet almost every single one of Jesus' disciples ultimately paid the ultimate price for their faith. They were martyred. 
because they were not willing to shut up about the fact that Jesus was who he said he was and he could do what he said he could do. Their hope was living. Their hope was active. And it transformed the way they lived their lives here because they knew that ultimately they would spend eternity there with him. And i got to tell you something. The hope that was resurrected in their hearts transformed the early disciples, but it continues to transform lives today. I could tell you about this, but I'd rather have some of my friends do that. So I'm going to invite Jeff and Pam Blum to come forward. Where you at? There they are. Now, Jeff and Pam are two people that are very, very dear to me. And I know that over the last several years, I'm missing one of these microphones. Where is it at? Robin, did you hold on to it? Oh, Lee's got it. Of course. Don't blame Robin. I already picked on the angels. I'm sorry. Thanks, sir. Over the last several years, Jeff and Pam, I know that you guys have been going through a pretty dark um, valley in your lives. Jeff, why don't you tell us a little bit about what's been going on? Uh, well, about uh, nine years ago, I got diagnosed with... Just closer. Put it oh, I got diagnosed with uh, trigeminal neuralgia, which is a uh, nerve um, problem in your in your brain. And uh, so I went and had uh, um, brain surgery, and uh, it fixed it for about six months, and it all came back again. And uh, so over the last uh, nine years, I've been trying different surgeries. I had. Uh, uh, couple of major surgeries after that. And so, of course, I started, uh, they prescribed pain medication. And, um, and I'm one of these kind of guys that, you know, if it feels good, then give me more. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> um, it got to the point where I was just, all I wanted to do was um, just check out because the pain was so bad. Wow. Yeah. And, um, and Pam, what was that like watching him walk through that? Yeah, it was awful because... Um, I could see him struggling with this chronic pain, and there was I just felt helpless. But then I became angry and frustrated with it because Jeff started to pull away from me and more reliant on his pain medication than he was us or God. Hmm. So um, I had to make a decision in May of 2014 to move out in my own place. And I needed to do that to protect myself, I thought, from this um, reliance on pain medications that was just yeah. overtaking our lives. Yeah, I know that you had said that it, it felt like you were watching the man that you loved mm -hmm. slowly self-destruct and you yes. just couldn't couldn't stand beside him as he did that and you were desperate and in, in many ways it seems like your hope in your marriage at that point it was kind of dead it really was it yeah. was um i i just didn't have any hope at all and i didn't want to give up on jeff because i really down deep loved him very mm -hmm. much but i just couldn't allow what was happening to take place in our home anymore and so we were apart for a couple years and well, let me ask you, Jeff, Jeff, what was it like when she said, I'm moving out? What was that like for you? Well, at that time, I was I was so overwhelmed by the uh, pain medication that, that um, 
and you know, I was a, I was just had given up hope on anything, you know, yeah. and um, so it was like a wake up call for me, and um, so um, over those two years, um, I tried to uh, get sober, and and I'd stay sober for a little while, and and then. Um, but uh, what happened was I really uh, came to that point in my life where I uh, surrendered, hmm. you know, and I knew that I needed Jesus to, uh, so I'd be, I've always believed in Jesus, and I just needed to, uh, you know, reiterate him in my life and trust him, and I gave it up to God and uh, and said whatever is going to come, I'll deal with it, and I uh, and then hope that you take whatever pain I need away, and he has. So, so Pam, hold on, hold on, hold on. Not yet. Soon, but not yet. So, what changed for you? Because your hope is dead. Your, your marriage is fractured. The man that you love is suffering. What, what changed for you? Well, you know, um, I had to turn this whole burden of our marriage over to Jesus. Yeah. I I couldn't handle it anymore, and I was, I was really desperate in those nights at home. You know, I would just cry so much because I did down deep really love him. I just didn't like him at all at that time. <laughs> Needless to say, but um, you know, I was driving to work. I take care of my grandchildren three days a week, so I was driving there and. Dr. James Dobson came on the radio and he had a woman talking about the real importance of forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And um, I listened to her for 30 minutes and I said, wow, I heard the Spirit tell me, you know, Pam, you need to forgive Jeff and you need to um, try to work on this. So... I started letting Jeff in a little bit at a time. I wasn't really 100% comfortable with that mm-hmm. because I was afraid of the the past would just come back again. Mm-hmm. But um, after I heard Jesus talking to me night after night, I I did. I asked Jeff to move back in in October of this last year, and. Even though our marriage is not perfect, but our time together has been much better. We pray together regularly, and we um, we really trust that the Lord's going to do a work in it. And mm-hmm. He did. He healed my trust. I have trust in Jeff again, and you know, it wouldn't have been possible without our small group here at church. They kept us in their hearts and prayers at all times. And even when it was all messy and horrible, that group of people prayed for us. Mm. And I never felt so welcome, even when I was on my own in that group. So I just thank God every day for that group. And so since October... You guys have been living together. Yeah, you are you are continuing to to trust, and I know that Jeff, right now, you still have a lot of the chronic pain going on, and you guys are in the process of, of leaning into God and trying to work through that. But the one thing I have seen, and this is why I asked them to share, is that I have seen the hope that's been rebirthed in your hearts and the joy yes. that you're finding in in following Jesus together. Yes, it's been a uh, it's 
been the best thing because we went so many years just, you know, playing the game of keeping Jeff sober. And but now we know that God's first, mm-hmm. and so with Him being first in our life, I I can't believe it. It's it's a lot better than it's ever been. Oh, well, thank you. Now, thank you. now you can. <laughs> So fun. What I what I love about Jeff and Pam's story is that it's real to life. Because they're not standing up here as people who have all of the bows, all the loose ends tied up. Jeff is still dealing with the pain. They're dealing with it together. Pam has back pain of her own that she didn't even share. They've got things going on within their lives, and nor do they even have a perfect marriage. They're still working through the same stuff we work through. But they have hope. Because their eyes are not on the stuff that they're dealing with as much as it's on Christ and he helps them get through it. And it brings to mind something that Jesus said. One of the very last things he said to his disciples before he was ultimately arrested, crucified, and they went on this emotional roller coaster. He said, listen guys, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But you can take heart in the fact that I have overcome the world. Now, I don't think that the disciples would have had any idea what he was talking about as they were sitting in the upper room having this meal because they had no concept of what was about to happen with Jesus being arrested and killed. But after the resurrection, after the empty tomb, after the hope that was resurrected in their hearts, I think that they began to recognize the power and the weight of those words. And those words still resonate into our lives today. Because Jesus says, if you follow me, you're not promised an easy, carefree life. You're not promised that you will be pain-free. In this world, you're going to have trouble. You're going to experience persecution. You're going to experience pain. You might get a cavity or four. You might have relational friction. There might be moments you wake up and go, did I marry the wrong person? Your bodies." will break down. And I know many of you are experiencing that. And ultimately, unless Jesus comes home soon, you will taste death. But, because of what Jesus did on that cross some 2,000 years ago, and because of the empty tomb and the fact that our Savior is risen from the dead, we have a hope that is living, and it tells us that the pain that we experience in this world does not get the last word. The persecution that we endure, whether it's at work or at school, doesn't get the last word. Broken bodies and broken relationships don't get the last word, and even the grave doesn't get the last word. God does. So I have one story, one last story I want to share with you this morning. It's too good not to share with you, and it's one that God has been writing in just the last three weeks. Three weeks ago, a friend of mine, Cindy, um, who works with a cancer support group, called me up and says, hey, I've got this friend. Her name is Julie, and Julie's dying. She's got liver and kidney disease. Her body is shutting down, and the doctors have given her weeks to live. Quite honestly, she's, she's run out of hope. She is despairing. Would you come talk to her? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll come. Oh, God, give me the words, right? Like, what, what are we going to do? So I go over to Cindy's house, 
And when I walked in, I saw Julie sitting on the couch and she just kind of barely even looked up at me because she was just sitting there. And this woman looked like she had the weight of the world on her shoulders. Her cheeks were emaciated. Her body is frail. This disease is claiming her life. And of course, I walk in and the first thing that comes to mind, I say, so I go, how you doing? (laughs) Typical pastor question, right? How you doing? She looks at me with these heavy, sad eyes and kind of like, literally, these are her words with the same inflection she gave me. I'm dying. Oh, we're going to be real today. Okay. So I sit down and I'm just kind of trying to gather my thoughts like, what? How do you, how do you follow this? And I just kind of shared with her the same thing I've shared with you this morning. We live in a broken, sin-scarred world and our lives are full of pain. And Julie, you're experiencing this right now. And I can't even begin to imagine what you and your husband are going through. But I do know this. Jesus died so that this disease doesn't have to get the last word. And he died and was risen from the grave so that he can walk with us through the stuff that we face in this life, and we have the hope that we will get to journey with him forever. That's the hope that we have. And Julie, quite honestly, I want you to have that hope as well. I don't want you and your husband to try to walk through this on your own. We weren't designed to walk through it on our own. And then I asked her if she wanted to accept Christ. And she said yes. And three weeks ago, we got a new sister in the family. The story doesn't stop there, though. About a week later, I went down to to visit her and her husband, Dan, whom I hadn't met yet, who was also struggling with his own pain and grief of watching his wife walk through this and feeling completely powerless to do anything. Any of you, you guys understand how that feels? As you watch somebody that you love dying in front of you or suffering in front of you and you don't have the power to change it. And as I walked in her house, same frail woman, same sunken cheeks, but there was a life and energy in her eyes that I had not seen the time before. And of course, because I don't learn from my mistakes, I say, how you doing? (laughs) And she looks at me and she smiled and she said, I'm pretty tired But quite honestly, I feel a whole lot of peace in the midst of all of this. I got to pray with her and I got to pray with her husband. And a few days later, she called me up and said, two things, two questions, two requests. One, would you baptize me? Two, would you do my memorial service? I'm like, yes and yes, but holy moly, like the weight of that. So this last Saturday, I got to gather with Julie with her husband, Dan, and with about 20 of their closest friends down on Balboa Island. Mark, you can throw that picture up. Got to gather with them down on Balboa Island as Julie publicly declared to the people who were closest to her that she was going to follow Jesus with all of her heart for as long as he gave her here and then into eternity. And I got to tell you something. Far from being this morose service for a dying woman, it was a celebration of hope. And that is the power of the resurrected hope that we have because of an empty tomb and a risen Savior, is that her disease doesn't get the last word, and the things that we face here and now don't get the last word. Amen?
And so we've got a couple of minutes here. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. But in these moments, I know that there are people sitting in here this morning that are facing some pretty heavy obstacles in your life. Maybe you're not physically dying right now and have weeks to live, but maybe it's you do have a body that's rebelling against you and breaking down. Maybe it's a broken heart because your marriage isn't where you hoped it would be. Maybe it has to do with finances and you just feel like you're constantly drowning and struggling to get a breath. Or maybe it has to do with something completely different. Maybe you find yourself in here this morning and you're like, man, this is the one of two times a year that I'm even open to coming in here because quite honestly, I'm surprised the building hasn't burned down yet and that God even allowed me to walk through the door because if, if anybody knew the crud that I have carried in with me and the things that I've done, they would demand that I leave. And if you identify with any of those things, if you've carried a burden in with you this morning and you just need hope in the midst of that, I'd ask you to stand up, to take a courageous step and just stand right where you're sitting. If there's somebody standing near you, we're a family here, would you just stand up and place a a hand on their shoulder? I'm going to pray for them, and I'm going to pray for those of you who are facing those things and have not yet stood. I'm just going to pray for us. Father God, I thank you that you loved us enough that you sent Jesus to die for us so that in his death we could live and we could be re-reconciled to you. And I thank you for the hope of the empty grave, that the brokenness of this world, the things we've done, the things that we will, we will stumble into even today, the obstacles we face don't get the last word, and that you will overcome them either in this life or in the life to come. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would wrap your arms around my brothers and my sisters. You know intimately well the stuff that they're looking at, the stuff they're facing, and how insurmountable it seems to them. But you're God and we're not. And you know how you're going to use those things, not only to glorify yourself in their hearts, but to use it to advance your kingdom purposes through them. And so I pray for your protection. I pray you would give them the strength to face today. And when they wake up tomorrow, would you give them the strength to face tomorrow? And would you remind them that they are not alone and that there is hope. There is hope that these things that they're looking at don't get the last word. And in that, we celebrate. You are good, and your love endures, and we are so grateful for Easter. And now, as a family, we simply want to worship and celebrate what you've done and the resurrected hope we have because we have a resurrected Savior. So, Lighthouse family, let's worship together.